0: And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places.
1: It wasn't always like this, you know. Living in a world where so much of our history has been debased and whitewashed, lies about where we come from and who we are have indoctrinated many of us to view ourselves and each other through a distorted lens. But what you see ain't always what you get. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. As the saying goes, history is written by the victors. And in the Eurocentric world order, violently colonizing an entire continent makes one triumphant. Disgusting, right? But those are the hands so much of our history has been left in. White supremacists who have, for centuries, worked tirelessly to disconnect us from our roots. Our guest today, however, is taking us back Way back to the truth of our origins and the truth of our history. Deborah Hurd is a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of Chicago, specializing in Nubian archaeology and Egyptian history and language. She's excavated sites in the Nile Fourth Cataract region in Sudan and serves as a founding member of the William Leo Hansberry Society, an organization committed to providing African descended people with access, opportunity, and training in the fields of ancient Nile Valley and Northeast African studies. Yes, yeah, she's the truth. But before we talk with Deborah, we'll hear the story of Sheikh Anta the Senegalese scholar whose revolutionary work shifted the entire world's view of African peoples.
2: Sheikh Anta Diop closed the book, a heavy sigh escaping his lips. He rubbed his eyes, exhausted and dissatisfied with yet another narrative disavowing African origins. The Western, centuries-old ideas of white superiority had far-reaching effects. The entire world now viewed Africa as an uncivilized landscape ripened for colonization an idea many African peoples had begun to adopt. He had to do something. He had to expose the truth that the earliest people were African people and that, contrary to white historians' beliefs, Egypt was a Black civilization. Disgust spread throughout the academic world and their Western imagination Egypt had no connection to Africa. But as a historian, anthropologist, physicist, and scholar in many more disciplines, Giob's research spoke for itself. In 1951, he submitted a PhD dissertation outlining how the Egypt, so many white scholars praised, was in fact an African civilization that greatly influenced European culture. Of course, it was rejected. But this didn't deter Diop. Just four years later, in 1955, his groundbreaking work called Negro Nations and Culture was published, and it changed the world's understanding of Africa and its contributions forever. The 1960s saw Diop back in his home of Senegal. Slowly, his earlier dissatisfaction began to fade. Yes, there was much, much more work to do, but the world's eyes were now opened. Despite being ridiculed, Sheikh Antejiop was unyielding in his pursuit to unify Africans by unraveling white supremacy and reminding us of our greatness. He recovered and reclaimed our whitewashed history, a legacy we can carry on by also recovering and reclaiming the truth of our origins. Let TEND Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait visit hellotend.com/sale that's hello com e n d.com/sale and book your free consult today
1: Deborah, what does black liberation look like to you
3: Black liberation is the freedom to decide our own destiny being able to decide our interactions with the social system, to think through our history, to imagine what we would like our world to be and how we would like to raise our children, the society and the world that we would like them to to be in. It's freedom from oppression, freedom from poverty, every person being able to imagine what their trajectory in life will be and be able to pursue that without obstacles being free from economic and political aggression and oppression. And all of those things are the things that impact our lives and, and keep us from living the fullest life that we can. And for me, that that is the essence of, of liberation.
1: Thank you, Deborah. So I'm of the belief that we should all, in some way, whether small or large, contribute our talents towards liberation until we have liberation. How does your work push us towards that vision of liberation that you've expressed?
3: So the, the work that I do, and mainly my, my work is focused on ancient African studies, but I also deal with more contemporary issues as well. But in all the work that I do, I want Black people and when I say black, you know, we have to define what, what blackness is because there's a discrepancy even amongst black people about what that means. Right. And for me, black people are people of African descent all over the world. Whether you are born on the continent or in the global diaspora, if you're African, African descended person, you are black. So going back to your question, My work, I want people to be able to critically think about how it is that we are in the predicament that we're in globally. And when it comes to thinking about what it means to be Black, the unification of Blackness takes us all the way back to the beginning of human existence on the continent, in the world. The earliest Homo sapien has been found in Ethiopia. So if you start there and you look at the migration of African people across the continent, people in the continent, and then people in the world, you see that there is a long history of African people in the world. Like we made history. So unlocking that that long trajectory of common history, but it also helps us to think past or break down that wall, especially in the United States, because a lot of people get hung up on slavery. Slavery is that wall, that mental wall. And we need to break down that wall, that barrier that keeps us from thinking about the long duration of our history. Our history did not begin with slavery. And so I think the work that I do is one way to start breaking down those mental barriers that keep us from being able to clearly see those inequalities and oppressions that keep us from from flourishing as people
1: most of us in america are taught that you know slavery was the beginning of our history essentially was that your experience as well how did you come to form your perspective of how our history Could be used and where it should begin.
3: It's funny because that road is not a straight one. (laughs) But I think that there were seeds planted all along the way. But I would say my first teachers, of course, were the elders in my family. And we can never discount the value of the history that we get from our elders in our own families. So I didn't start school until first grade, so I was actually at home with my great-great-aunt, and she was born in 1901. So she was already about 70 years old when I was a little kid, and so to me, she was ancient. But I literally, like literally sat at her feet, and she told me all kinds of stories. So I know my great-great-grandmother, who was her mother, I know her as if She, you know, I had actually been in the house with her and had discussions with her because she told me so many stories. And I think that having that link opened my mind at an early age to be able to think about what does history mean? History was something very personal for me, even though the history that she told me within the family basically could only take me so far. So it wasn't until I think I was in law school, actually. A friend of mine, he called me one day. He was like, Kwame Ture speaking at Dillard. Do you want to go? And I was like, yeah, okay." And (laughs) that literally blew my mind. I went to the Black bookstore, community bookstore in New Orleans, and I was just buying up everything. And then somebody mentioned to me about Sheikhan Dijokh. And I was like, who is he? So I I bought his book and that became my entry point into studying ancient Africa was was Shake Out the Joke.
1: Which book was it, the pre-colonial?
3: No, Civilization or Barbarism.
1: Okay, got it. Can you describe what it was like hearing Kwame Ture speak for the first time?
3: Oh my gosh. So Kwame Ture opened up liberation movements for me so that is another area that I'm I'm very interested in but hearing him speak was one of the seminal points you know in my in my adult life because he was just passionate about what he was speaking about but knowing that he had experienced all of these things firsthand so uh, my father passed away when, when I was five, uh, he was in a car accident, but I remember one of the things that I remember, cause, and he was a young man. I had, my parents were, were teenagers, but, um, he was in college at the time. So this was like the early seventies. And so he had the, he had, who gro- was growing out as Afro, but I remember one of the things that he would, he would have me do was like, you know, raise your fist, say black power, black power, you know? And mm. so. Hearing that, it brought me back to that time when I was too young to know what was going on, but I still remember my father trying to instill those those seeds in me. But hearing the struggles that people went through, you know, that he went through as a member of SNCC, first of all, you know, you were registering people to vote, but then moving into the Black Power movement, that was just transformational and then he mentioned Asada Shakur. So I was right, I'm writing stuff down. He's mentioning names, I'm writing them down. Mm. I went to community bookstore immediately and bought Asada Shakur's book. So he just opened up a whole new area for me as far as you know people, events. But he also what he really did for me was he made me question what it was that I thought I knew about this country. Because up until that time, I still believed that if you worked hard enough and, you know, you committed yourself, that you could make it, regardless of your background, regardless of your color of skin, you know, the American dream. And he pulled the mask off of that farce, (laughs) you know, showing how the U.S. government engaged in counterintelligence programs against these groups that were basically trying to ensure that, you know, Black people in this country and around the world had equal access to things, you know, were treated fairly, had justice, that they were Actively, government, this government was actively undermining people, organizations, and governments. Because if you think about the the instability that's on the African continent right now, most of that goes back to the destabilization of um, governments right after they were, quote unquote, decolonized. So um, he really made me start to question and critically think about the ways in which Black people, Black organizations, and Black governments have been a threat, have been deemed a threat. And once they're deemed a threat, how there has been this all-out assault to destroy people, organizations, and governments. So that, that's really what he did for me.
1: Sounds like a powerful transformation or at least eye-opening event in in your life. So that's that's incredible. You mentioned threats and how certain things are viewed as threats when it came to us. Let's talk about how history is in that lane. I believe that the powers that be see us understanding our history as a threat and have gone to lengths to make it as muddied or opaque as possible. Would you would you agree with that?
3: When we think about ancient Africa, we have to really start with with the first major society, which was Egypt. And that fight over Egypt is well over a century old. That fight goes back to the origins of the discipline of Egyptology. Um, So Egyptology was a, a discipline that emerged during the colonial period. I mean, the British They had an empire. And so most of the early Egyptologists came from Britain or France or Germany, all colonial powers on the African continent. So when they they began excavating and, uh, you know, one of the earliest questions or one of the first questions became, well, who, who were the Egyptians? Where did they come from? Because you see these fabulous ruins. So they were, you know, one of the earliest and the most glorious of these ancient civilizations. So who were they, and where did they come from? But that question was embedded within a larger discussion. So we have to think about the fact, again, I, I mentioned it, that this is during the colonial period. So the Europeans that are going colonizing all these different lands and especially the African continent, in order to justify, degrading human beings, taking their land, taking their resources, you have to see them or portray them in a way that diminishes their humanity. So there was already in place a philosophy that Black people were subhuman if they were human at all. So, if you, if you raise a discipline within that philosophical construct and you start asking questions, you're on the African continent, you see this, this civilization. Well, the one thing, to, the first thing you're going to say, well, this can't be related to the people on this continent because our philosophical construct already tells us that they are incapable of critical thought, that they're not intelligent, barely human, so they could not be the people that constructed or in any way had any dealings with this civilization. So how do you explain its rise then? If it's on the African continent, but you're trying to say, but it can't be these people. And What's really interesting is that Flinders Petrie was considered the father of Egyptology, so he was one of the first to actually go and excavate on a on a regular basis and, and try to interpret what it was that he was excavating. But he ran into problems with a couple other archaeologists because when they were excavating some of these early graves, they were of the impression that these people they didn't call black people African; they said Negro and Negroid that these Skeletal remains; these people that were excavating, they have necroid features. So is like, mm, uh, so basically, you're trying to argue that these people were black <laughs> or Negro. Um, so he comes up with this theory that, okay, well, perhaps these earliest people were Negroes, but then you had a a white dynastic race that came in and defeated them. And they were the people that founded the civilization of Egypt. So throughout, you know, the early Egyptology, you have these different theories that basically transforms Egypt into a white society. But it's really been exposed, I would say, over the last And when I say exposed, I mean like in the mainstream, like mainstream white egyptologists are accepting that that there was racism at the founding of of this discipline. But I mean, you had people like Sheikh Ante Jope, who was making that argument back in the 70s, early 70s. But you had people even before then. So we have African-Americans. We have a scholar from Haiti. These are people in the 1880s that are making this argument that know that the ancient Egyptians were African people. And this is an argument that continues to this day. It is becoming less of an argument with Egyptologists. And now the the argument has kind of rolled over into the definition of the modern versus the ancient Egyptian but we're still having this denial of Africanity. So there is a insidious type of mentality that still sees Blackness as something other, as something less than, as something degraded, because I have seen Egyptian Egyptologists say ancient Egypt was in Africa, but it's not of Africa. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, in their eyes, the ancient Egyptians were not quote-unquote Black. And Du Bois, in his history books, so Du Bois wrote a series of, of history books where he basically kind of destroys the Egyptologists on this concept of the Negro, because the Egyptologists were saying that the Egyptians and the Nubians were Non-Negroid, and Du Bois says, "Well, what do you mean by Negro? Because what you define as a Negro here, you're saying is not a Negro in Egypt or or Sudan. So, how are you defining Negro? You're defining Negro as one particular set of Africans, and and according to Du Bois, you know, it's the darkest, the curliest-haired, you know, like." You, you'd be hard-pressed to find uh, a wide population of quote-unquote Negroes anywhere on the continent by your definition. But that definition changes based upon how you want to either include or exclude people. And so that is part of how this argument is, is, has shaped out when, in terms of the ancient Egyptians. It's like, oh, they were Black, but well, what do you mean by Black? Oh, they weren't West African. Okay, what part of West Africa? Or or the only Africans are in West Africa? You don't include South and East and North. There, Those aren't Africans. So you have to really start critically analyzing. You also have to really look at how people use terminology, raise questions and, and push back on how people are defining terms to either try to include or exclude based on their political orientation or what they're trying to achieve by making those inclusions or exclusions.
1: You know, when I was first learning about ancient Egyptian history in the Nile Valley, it amazed me. How just the vastness of the history. And I think that's something that's difficult for us today to wrap our minds around. We're talking about thousands of years, not a couple hundred years, right? We're talking about thousands of years. So I could see how, you know, people can pick and choose from which period they may be referring to and saying, okay, no, these were the ancient Egypts and they were definitely, you know, this way or that way. So you made another point about what it means to have Negroid features or to be African. And you know, I, I'd like to dig into that some more because something I, I even hear people in our own community say today was, well, you know, so what? Why does it even matter, right? Because, you know, we came from, most of us came from West Africa. Are you able to speak to that in terms of like, why should we Black folks in America or any Black folks that can't trace their lineage directly to ancient Egypt, right? How, Why should we even care about what was going on There and how it relates to Africans around the continent.
3: One of the first things we have to recognize is that from the very beginning, African people were migratory. They didn't stay in one place. If Homo sapiens that emerged in Ethiopia had stayed in Ethiopia, (laughs) where would everybody else be? Um, So we see throughout the history that groups of people were moving Across the continent, they're moving east-west and they're moving north-south, and that is the real issue about who the ancient Egyptians were. It's not one group of people. It's not one group that just settled and is like, oh, we're the Egyptians. Throughout Egypt's history, there are people moving in and out of the Nile Valley, and we also have to look at the connections with ancient Nubia. So we we tend to make too much of a distinction between these groups of people on the Nile River. But people in Nubia were moving north into Egypt. People in Egypt were moving south into Nubia. So there is a lot of movement going on. Why is that important for people in West Africa? Because people in West Africa did not stay in one place. When people are doing these DNA tests and they say, oh, you're 35% blah, 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 from Guinea-Bissau. And people were all excited. It's like, okay, but do you realize how many ancestors you had to get to to get back to the continent? And you think that that, all your ancestors came from that one place? And we're looking at modern populations of people that live there. Your ancestors, their group may have migrated. they, They may have been living there, but they may have come from a neighboring region. So that that that's one thing we have to understand, you know, migrations and people didn't just stay in one place. So if people did not stay in one place, there is a sharing of genes. So, you know, DNA is being shared, cultures are being shared. So that is one of the things that Sheikh Andajop was talking about, is that if you trace far enough, there are cultural continuities that you can see that override some of the cultural distinctions. Sheikh Job was an interesting figure because he was not only an Egyptologist, he actually was a scientist, first of all. He was a chemist, and he created the first C-14 lab on the continent. So he was doing his own C-14 dating, which is awesome to think about. But Sheikh Job was also very much an activist And so he was writing about how Africa needed to do certain things to become economically viable. He was talking about cultures, um, so how the continent could overcome all of these ethnic cultural differences by looking at the cultural continuities that connected them all. So he was showing that historically, a lot of these regions that have been artificially divided up into countries, you know, they share the same culture. And so that's one of the things that we really need to to think about and consider. For me as a person who grew up in the diaspora and not knowing exactly where my family came from, I feel like everywhere I place my foot on the African continent is home. And I will defend home for myself, for the people in the diaspora, and for the people on the continent. So that's why I'm passionate about African history, because, like I said, any place I place my foot on the continent, I feel is home for me.
1: So do you believe that, you know, understanding and embracing the cultural continuity today is one path towards unity in the diaspora?
3: Definitely, and and that's that's an issue that we're kind of addressing now. I mean, and, and this this comes out especially with when you're dealing with with students in the universities, you know, coming together and coming from the continent, coming from the Caribbean, coming from the South, coming from the West. Um, you know, we come with our own predispositions. We come with our own biases. We come with the things that are parents have taught us, but mostly we come with the things that media has told us about each other. And so people come thinking that our cultures divide us and that that's why I keep going back to the the question about what, what does it mean to be black? Uh, Because I've been having a discussion with, with some students and in referencing Students from the continent, students in, in the diaspora, you know, I hear, well, the African students want to do this, but they don't feel that the Black students, and I'm like, hold up, hold up, Who, who who's the Black students? So, the Black students are the African Americans. I was like, no, Black students are all of the students of color. All of these students, whether you're from the continent, whether you're from the Caribbean, whether you're from your Afro-British, <laughs> Afro-German, all of you are Black. Um, So that that false distinction that somehow black is just African-American is like, no, we have to we have to break that down. But then it becomes this thing where people become very segregated because they feel that my culture is not your culture and your culture is not my culture. and, And it's like, but we need to understand that based on where we are or where we grew up. We had to take the traditions that we had and create something that will help us to to exist in whatever environment we find ourselves in. I, and I, I always I keep saying that the u s when we came when we were brought here, we were brought into a deformed system. It was meant to it was meant to dehumanize us. So we had to operate. Under this thing that was trying to deform us, but out of that we have gospel music, we have the blues, we have jazz. We have created a culture in this country. That does not mean that that culture has nothing in common with a culture in West Africa, with the culture in East Africa. The foods that we eat, the types of music that we play, there are differences but those differences should be appreciated and not seen as things that divide us. Because if you listen and if you observe and if you taste, you will see the similarities underneath the differences. My area is Nubian archaeology. So I've gone to the Sudan twice to excavate and live you know, stayed in the villages for two months. And people were asking me, well, what was it like? And I was like, it was like being at home. My family is from rural Georgia. I was the first born in the city. I was born in Atlanta. But my family's, you know, they were from the country where it's red clay. You know, houses are like a mile apart. (laughs) You can't see the next house. When I was younger, my my, my great grandparents still had an outhouse. They had you know chickens in the yard they raised their own pigs we had a cow so when i went to Sudan it was like okay i'm this looks familiar mm, yep. <laughs> this, you know and people were friendly the same way that they were friendly in in you know our hometown people would drive by you know if a car would drive by they people would stop and wave the same way they would do in georgia you know, and my great grandparents. Uh, you know, a car go by. They they get on the phone and try to find out who that was that drove by, and if it was somebody you know a family member you know that might have moved away or something. People would start showing up at the house to greet you, and and then they would invite you you know to over to their house to eat, and it was a sincere invitation. And it was the same thing in Sudan. The man who lived next door. He we moved into the house, and he said oh, I want you to come over and, you know, have have something to eat with my my wife and my daughters. And we were like, oh, okay. You know, so three days later, he shows up and he was like, why haven't you all been to my house? And, you know, we're from the <laughs> United States. We're like, you know, we're used to people saying, oh, yes, we should do coffee. And, mm. you know, they don't really mean it. No, this man was serious. He's like, we've been waiting for y'all. Why y'all haven't come?
1: Wow.
3: <laughs> you know, so it's just, um, you know, eating the food. Uh, one of the things that shocked me was uh, we ate,
0: we had a, a
3: little uh, dinner over at our inspector's house at the end of the season. So his sisters were cooking food. And so they brought out an appetizer. And so I look and I was like, and so that they they brought out newbies and we saw them growing. So newbies are what we call black eyed peas. Mm. But they roast them instead of boiling them, and so they're very good roast. And so, okay, this is a cultural "quote unquote" difference, right? But it's like we eat these, but Mm -hmm. we just boil them, and y'all. But they could roast it, you know. So it's like you can understand differences and appreciate them, but that does not separate you from each other.
1: You know, I've not had the opportunity to go to the continent yet, but from what I understand, there are these differences, but the commonalities, I think outweigh them. And that thing, that's the the thing here. It's like, we have much, much, much more in common with our folks over there and around the world than we do with European culture, European society, even though we're here and we are sort of, you know, we've been raised in it you know, at the root of it, the core of who we are, I think, is right. still connected to the continent.
3: I think that if we can step back and think about the ways that, I mean, modern society in, you know, contemporary society, we're tending to adopt these Western ways. But if you step back a generation or two and think about your interactions with like your grandparents, that gets you back more to that natural traditional way of being. So like I said, when I was in Sudan, it was just like me being at my great grandparents. Mm-hmm. And so the way that I interacted with people was just the way that I was brought up because I, I was raised by my grandmothers. So my interactions were pe- with people were based on the ways that I was taught to interact with people by my grandmother. And so I think that if we can get back to some of those traditional ways. And that's the reason why when I started talking about my great-great-aunt, I talked about sitting at her feet, literally. And it's that, what's called, the intergenerational transmission of knowledge. But that eldership is very, very important to our culture. And it's important for retaining our culture because it shows young children the uh respect that should be shown to elders but the elders are transmitting the knowledge of the history of the family of the community to the young people and i think that that is part of what's missing young children are not having that exposure to the elders that will allow them to have those types of conversations the history I really think that that's the root of it. And so, but I have so many stories about my family and especially people that are now ancestors about their lives as children and growing up and, you know, like these seminal events that in the family, you know, become kind of legend. Mm -hmm. But it's like, I had that and I've had that since I was a kid because I asked those questions. But it also, I think, really gave me that hunger who want to know more about where we came from generally you know because i'm getting that that where we came from my family but it's like but how did we get here as Mm -hmm. a people and i think that that those are the roots of that for me
1: it is unfortunate that i think you know our community is moving farther away from that the more we get assimilated into the the mainstream society and See less value in sitting at the feet of our our elders, so I see history as a tool. our history can be used as a tool to learn and implement things that you know we may have lost that may not have been passed down intentionally. you know in thinking about ancient African civilizations, uh what comes to mind? For you, something that you've learned that we could use as a people today—that we may not be as connected to right now.
3: One of the areas that I've been really taken with has been about the queens, especially the queens of Nubia. We know about a few of the reigning queens of Egypt. Cleopatra, I think, is overrated. (laughs) You know, when it comes to the queens of Egypt, Hatshepsut definitely is the one that you know. Is striking for me as far as reigning queens. But in Nubia during the Meroitic period, so that was when the capital or the center of the civilization kind of moved even further south between the sixth, fifth, and sixth cataracts in Sudan. We have a line of, of reigning queens. And these queens are powerful women. They're written about by the Greeks and the the Romans in their history books. Um, Strabo talks about Amanarenus, who is a queen he called the one-eyed queen. So at some point, she may have been injured and, you know, something had damaged her eye. But she was noted by Strabo because the Romans had already come into Egypt and you know, had had taken over from Cleopatra and, and were reigning, and they had started moving into to Nubia. And so there was this back and forth between Rome, the Roman Egyptians, and the Kushites, which is the, the name of the kingdom that continues, you know, during the, this period. So we have the Naphtun period, which is the 25th dynasty, and those are the kings that rule both Egypt and Nubia. Uh, but that whole period is called the Kushite period. So the Romans are trying to expand the border southwards into Nubia. But Amonarenus keeps fighting. <laughs> so it's like the, the, the Romans will retake the area, then Amonarenus will send her troops, and then they will retake it. And they keep going back and forth Till Augustus Caesar is like, look, I'm tired of dealing with this. Can we just have a peace treaty, have her send an emissary to Rome and we'll just sign a peace treaty. Can you imagine that? (laughs) This African queen takes Rome to the point where they were just like, we'll just sign a peace treaty. Mm -hmm. And the the thing about these queens is like a Monterenes, they didn't just send their troops into battle. They actually went into battle with their troops. So these are queens that fight so we, you see these queens on the sides of uh, the temples. We know that Amanarenus was, was one that was actively involved. Maybe some of the other ones weren't. But when you see these queens on the sides of the temples, they are big, full-figured women. So typically in Egypt, you will see, you know, the slim type woman or goddess. These women are full-figured and healthy And we've had some Egyptologists that want to call them fat. And it's like, no, you call them fat as a way of disparaging them. These women are being portrayed as voluptuous. They are beautiful. They are powerful. So you see them, you know, they've got the mace, they've got enemies by the hair, but they're still dressed to the nines. So they're, they're wearing dresses, they're wearing cloaks, they've got on their jewelry. They're very well attired. So their size is a sign of their prosperity, but it's also a, a show of their beauty, uh of what they what is seen as beautiful during that time period. So for me, just the image of these powerful women, the fact that they were able to rule a large kingdom shows to me that there is something in our history that valorizes women. So if you look at the way that women, black women are depicted today in the media, that is totally against our culture. That's that's anti-African. Mm. You know, the woman that's the the Jezebel. Women are valorized, they're powerful. That doesn't mean that she's, you know, the little mouse that, you know, always has to be protected, it shows a different type of gender dynamic where women can be powerful, they can exercise authority, and that does not mean that they are taking away anything from men. So it, it, it you know, there's, there's nothing in the culture that shows that men felt less than because you had a ruling queen. So women were respected, men were respected as well, because uh, we even have a ruling couple, uh, the Takamani and a Monitore. So for me, it shows a different type of gender dynamic that both honors and respects women while simultaneously honoring and respecting men. It doesn't have to be either or. Our traditional cultures are complementary. And, uh, and so I think that that's one of the things that we have to get back to is, is that mutual honoring and mutual respect.
1: You know, one thing I've seen recently from both Black and white folks is, you know, sort of mocking this concept that there were Black kings and queens. And, you know, Black folks being like, well, we all weren't queens and kings, couldn't have all been kings and queens, so doesn't matter. We shouldn't even think about that. But the way I see it is that If we're raised in a society um, and looking at these history books and all we see are European people um, being in positions of power like this, I think that leaves us with a certain image in our mind, right? So obviously not all white people were kings and queens, but being able to understand that we held certain positions of authority and leadership and probably handled it in ways that at times were more just and equitable, I think is, is powerful. What are your thoughts on that?
3: I know that there was a time when back in the 70s, when we were starting to reclaim our history, that you know, people were saying, well, you know, we were kings and queens. No, we weren't all kings and queens, but that does not mean that we did not have respect for ourselves and and for our communities. But I think it is very transformative for a young person to know that people that look like me were were kings and queens of their own of uh, their own countries, that people were in leadership positions in their own communities. There is just so much dysfunction in our world when we look at the media about how you know governments exercise power even even on the continent, you know, but that is that is the result mainly of colonialism. So we have to look at historically, how we were able to maintain systems of power that basically treated all people with respect, but also made sure that all people in the society were taken care of. That's that's the problem that we're dealing with in our country today. Everybody's not receiving the resources that they need to have a a decent life. So, But when we, we look back historically, we see that it is possible. It is possible for Black people to rule themselves, you know, in in their countries, in their villages, in their communities, and do so in a way that everybody gets what they need. So I think that there's a history of Black people being able to exercise authority in a way that it's beneficial for everyone involved, and 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 so I think that showing that historically is another way of helping us to see our way forward, because that that's what this really is all about. Is Sankofa? Sankofa is looking back to see what we need in order to move forward. What have we lost that we need to go and fetch to move forward, and so. I am looking at like people like Thomas Sankara, who I love,
0: Mm.
3: uh, Patrice Lumumba, just all of these movement people who, you know, brought about the independence and then were either vilified or killed because they wanted to be independent. I want people to really start to think about what are the best ideas that these people had and how can we pull out those ideas and integrate them into policies that we can implement today? Mm. So, yes, going back and seeing what we can use to take us forward.
1: Just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history you matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value the work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at BlackHistoryYear.com. Most people do five or ten bucks a month, but every little bit makes a difference. Appreciate you supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, Leslie Taylor Grover, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Tabitha Jacobs, Abani Jones, Brianna Lamback, Courtney Morgan, Zane Murdoch, Tay, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Sidney Smith and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the show. And Black History Years' executive producer is Julian Walker. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Peace.